The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, if you'll turn in your scriptures, please, to the book of Exodus. Chapter 8 and verse 20, reading through to chapter 9, verse 12. As Pastor Rockin very helpfully, I think, uh, elucidated last week, the plagues come to us in groups of three, and so tonight we'll be dealing with the fourth, fifth, and the sixth plagues together. And so let's give our attention then. This is God's word. He is speaking to us at this very moment in his word. Exodus 8, verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians." If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go, and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. 
But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land, and the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become like fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord God, we would not now be as Pharaoh and harden our hearts, but we would have open ears, soft hearts, loosened necks that we might honor you now and hear of your goodness your goodness to your children the punishment upon your enemies we might learn to love you and trust you all the more we ask this in jesus name amen Well, as I have been in recent time, I want to stay at a fairly high level in the text before us, not getting lost in the multitudes of detail. There will be details we simply don't touch on tonight, but I hope instead to give us an overview of what's going on here. What I say tonight is really predicated upon Pastor Ocken's teaching of last week. If you were here, bring all that into this sermon also. The plagues of Egypt reveal much to us concerning the mind of God. Not just the mind of God, but of human responsibility with respect to the mind of God. And ultimately, they teach us much about the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps one of the main themes in the early chapters of Exodus, we find it there in chapter 8, verse 22, is that Pharaoh, first of all, the Egyptians, the Israelites, the Hebrews, and we as the reader might know that Yahweh is the Lord. He is the Lord in the midst of the earth. That our God is the living and true God, and there is none like him. And that's really our focus, in a sense, this night. What does this text reveal us more about God himself? What does it reveal about his son also, and also reveal about human responsibility and action with respect to the mind and will of God? And we'll see that really in three parts this evening. First of all, we look at God's mind in bringing the plagues. God's mind in bringing the plagues. 
Secondly, we'll go back to Pastor Rockin's cycle of uh, warnings. So God's cycle of warning and of hardening. A cycle of warning and hardening. And then lastly, we'll see that all this comes through God's use of his servant Moses. God's use of his servant Moses. God's mind, firstly, in bringing the plagues. Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? The first mind, if we can speak in this way, the first thing in the mind of God with respect to the plagues is, of course, judgment. We know where these plagues are going. They'll end in the death of the firstborn. They'll end then in the death of Pharaoh and his armies. Judgment is writ large across the early chapters of Exodus. And we see that judgment firstly in the presence of plagues. We need to understand, uh, contrary to how liberal theologians will approach this text, these are supernatural events. These are not just things that happened in the life of Egypt and somehow Israel later on attached importance or or significance to them. These are supernatural events with a supernatural purpose. And that purpose is judgment. Pastor Ocken introduced to us an idea last week of decreation. The plagues uh, bring a disorder to the created order, extraordinary things, as it were, decreating the life of Egypt. They're striking at the very heart of Pharaoh, his role, the theology of Egypt, and their whole world view. It's interesting, later on in the book of Deuteronomy, and I mentioned this morning the Deuteronomic principle, obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings cursing. We get that from Deuteronomy 28 and 29. Go home and read it. Can't do it now. But there we see plagues and other such providential troubles come upon the people of God. Plagues coming as a covenantal curse and judgment even on the people of God. So that if they broke covenant with God... They would find plagues. They would find terrors. Indeed, we read this this morning, didn't we? With, with God's word to Solomon. If your people depart from me, I will bring upon them disaster. That's the nature of what's going on here. These plagues are curses. Curses on the Egyptians for a broken covenant of works. Later on, curses upon the Israelites for a broken covenant of grace. That is to say, friends, God uses plagues and curses as a means of calling people to repentance and giving them a sign of what is to come if they do not repent. It's very clear from our text, chapter 8, verse 20 and 21, uh, particularly verse 21. uh, Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies. It's an if-then statement. If you don't obey me, then this is what will happen. Yet another plague. And there'll be another plague after that. It's repeated the same language in chapter 9, verse 2. In the fifth plague, 
We'll come to the sixth plague in a moment. If you don't do as I've told you, Pharaoh, if you will not let my people go, then this is what is going to come. And so it did. The text is very clear. The Lord said this would happen, and it did. Swarms of flies, biting insects, descend down upon Egypt, verse 24. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by a swarm of flies. Pharaoh hardens his heart again. The Lord sends a fifth plague. We read in chapter 9, verse 6, And the next day the Lord did this thing, and the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Finally, as we remember Pastor Rockin's pattern of warnings last week, the sixth plague comes because Pharaoh hardens his heart again. This time it comes without warning. Boils and sores which bring ruin and death upon the Egyptians. Friends, what we're seeing is cursing. Cursing. Judgment by God Almighty. God judging the wicked. And he does so providentially through these cursage, uh, through these curses, He brings affliction upon them, really as a a, a presage to the ultimate decreation act of the destruction in the Red Sea. These are parts, if you will, preludes to what is to come ultimately. Friends, these plagues most certainly reflect the trouble of all men, life under the curse. But friends, we're told very clearly here they may also reflect divine judgment on the unrepentant wicked yes the plagues speak to us of judgment that's what's in the mind of god but so also is salvation and redemption in the mind of god through the plagues and these plagues were introduced to a new element at least explicitly were introduced to a new element that is the separation of the the hebrews from the Egyptians in the land of Goshen. Chapter 8, verse 22. God has promised the plague of flies, he says, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. A setting apart a division. We're told the same thing again in chapter 9, verse 4. The Lord made us a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Listen, I will set apart the land of Goshen. One commentator says that's the language of election. A setting apart, a choosing of this land, a choosing of the people of this land so that they would be separated from the consequences of these judicial judgments. Not just separated from the judgments, but that the judgments would ultimately serve their salvation. We read this in verse 23. Thus I will put a division, a division, that's probably a wrong translation, I I think literally the Hebrew says, I will set a redemption between my people and your people. 
We see this idea clearly worked out in the words of our Lord that he says to Pharaoh and Moses. He tells Moses to go and present himself to Pharaoh and say to him, let my people go that they may serve me. That, that's the ultimate end, the mind of God in this matter. That the distinction, the separation, the setting of a redemption between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel will be so that the people of God will be delivered from Egypt. They might go into the promised land. God will recreate them as a nation of his own, his own child, that he might dwell in their midst and that they might be a light to the nations round about them. Exodus 19 verse 6. Friends, it's important to note here with this respect of redemption, two, two matters. <clears throat> the first is this, Israel is special. And the second is this, Israel is not special. Israel is most certainly special, the covenant people. And here God prevents the ravages of the plagues coming upon them he separates them he makes a distinction he sets a redemption yes israel the covenant people is special but we also have to say no israel is not special it is not special the final plague the death of the firstborn would afflict everyone in egypt unless the doorposts of their house were covered in the blood of the passover lamb that was a symbol to the Israelites that, in fact, notwithstanding their covenant status in terms of their state before God, who they were, spiritually speaking, they were exactly like the Egyptians. But God had made a provision for them. He had set them apart as a signification to them and to us that unless we are covered in the blood of the Paschal Lamb, Jesus Christ, we're no better than Pharaoh. We're no better than Pharaoh. It was a signal to them and a signal to us that we are never to take our covenant status for granted. We are never to allow our covenant status to become a stumbling block to us in coming to faith <clears throat> or in exercising faith. Yes, we can say the Egyptians were destroyed, their children were destroyed, but so would have the Israelites have been if they did not spread the blood of the Lamb across their door. It's a reminder to us, dear friends, that redemption from the Lord is not because we're worthy of it. It just isn't. It's not because we're safe within these four walls. We can be on our way to hell within these four walls, just as well as being without of these four walls. Now, the mercy and grace of God in salvation are seen not just simply because this is the covenant people, but rather those who are of faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the mercy of God on show, no doubt. It's the mercy of God that we are not hardened to his word, but in his will softened to the warnings of God. It was not the case with Pharaoh. Here we witness God's cycle of warning and hardening once more. A cycle of warning and hardening. Pastor Rockin really well 
brought this out last week. The cycle of warning is informative. Do you remember it? Morning warning, palace warning, no warning. Pharaoh receives a warning in the morning, a warning in his palace, and then in the third of each section of plagues, no warning whatsoever. I'm not going to rehearse those details, but let's try and think about why should this pattern be seen in the text? What's its significance, both for Pharaoh and for us? Why did Pharaoh need repeated warnings? Well, we know very clearly the repetition of these warnings is because Pharaoh is bound in darkness, is a liar and bound up in deception. Every time Pharaoh appears to soften in his heart towards the Lord under the pressure of these curses, he changes his mind again. Look at chapter 8, verse 29. Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servant, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Pharaoh it lives and is bound in darkness. What we're seeing here, the folly of him going back on his word time and time again, it's, it's what comes natural to him. This is the natural man, that is the man without Christ, the man without the work of, of the Spirit in his life. This is what natural man is like. That even when the greatest evidence and the greatest pressure and the greatest affliction rests upon him, and in Pharaoh's case, his people and his land, he still won't change his mind. But we also see an escalation, not just repetition, but an escalation in the nature, the kind of warning that God gives. We see that pattern, don't we? First, there is the morning warning. At the break of day, when Pharaoh presumably goes out to the Nile to wash, to clean himself, in relative privacy, Moses goes to him to speak to him, perhaps even one-on-one. Maybe there's some servants there. But it's a rather personal moment, a quiet, private, personal moment. That's the first warning of the cycle of three. Pharaoh ignores it. He ignores it. So the next warning is what? The palace warning. Presumably in front of Pharaoh, his courtiers, uh, the magicians and so on, Moses boldly goes into the, 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 um, the courts of Pharaoh and publicly warns him. Publicly, not privately. Publicly warns him before his court that if he does not let the people go, he will again and the nation will be afflicted. And when his heart is hard once again, there is no final warning. The third warning is no warning. God simply acts with judgment once again. Friends, we're given an insight here into the working of God. The working of God, even with unbelievers, And we can speak in some way in a broad but not salvific sense, a broad sense of the mercy of God even to unbelievers. God's not obligated to give warnings to Pharaoh. 
He's not obligated to give this graduation and escalation of warnings. God is not obligated to give three opportunities for obedience. And yet he does so. The merciful God, up to a point even, we could say, slow to anger, even with Pharaoh. But we can also say, secondly, with respect to God's mind for the unbeliever, not just the mercy of God is seen, but we can say that, and we speak as a man, God's patience does wear out for the unbeliever. God's patience wears thin until it wears out. He will not tolerate unbelief or wickedness, especially at the cost of his people. It's a warning to any here this night who are living without Christ. Your time is running out. And the answer, dear friend, is not to continue as you are. It is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And you will turn. You will be turned. Your heart will be softened, unlike Pharaoh, and you'll be restored to God. He'll grant you life, and these plagues will never come upon you in life or in death. But think, friends, if this is how God is towards his enemies, we can even say to a point, slow to anger with them, consider how he is with his children. Consider the warnings. The warnings he gives to his children, how they differ in kind to the warnings he gives to Pharaoh. Think about this. God speaks to his children, does he not, through the ministry of the Spirit in our consciences? Is that not the most private of warnings we could ever receive? That the Spirit takes what we have read and learned over many years privately, not before anyone else speaks to our heart, brings us to repentance, causes us to turn. I even heard one well-known preacher say that the preaching of the word is a great opportunity for God to chasten and discipline his people. Again, another private, private matter I've known churches, we don't do it here, I'm thankful we don't, but I've known churches where the pastor will call out people by name. Staggering, isn't it? But no, the ministry of the word is a private word working in the heart of those who need it. This very moment, God speaking to his people, those who are present for the word to be preached and to be received, God is working those warnings, encouragements, exhortations, rebukes in us privately. You might not feel it's private, but it is. Nobody else knows what's going on in your heart between you and the Lord. Bless the Lord for this. God speaks to his children quietly often in the confines of our own heart and our own conscience and brings us unto himself. But what if we won't repent as his children? Is it not the case also that the warnings escalate for us as the children of God? They escalate both in intensity and in publicity. The intensity escalates in the sense that when God is speaking to us quietly through conscience and word and ministry of the Spirit, it's just between us and him. It's a teaching moment. But what happens when our, we refuse to hear that? 
and we lose our peace and our joy, our contentment and satisfaction in God, the intensity of the warnings becomes harder and harder. Those calls to obedience and repentance might then come to us through providential chastening, a somewhat more public aspect where God is pouring out trials into our lives in order to turn us from a course of action because we've been stiff-necked and proud of heart and we won't listen to him. The intensity and the publicity of God's warnings to his children eventually will be public. Friends, we're seeing here an aspect of God's judicial warning to his enemies and his chastening, warning, sanctifying love to his children. Notice how with Pharaoh... God's warnings to him strike at the very heart of this man's existence. Cast your mind back to what Pastor Ocken said last week about the Egyptian gods, about how Pharaoh played a role in the panoply of their gods, and now God is striking at the very heart of Pharaoh's life, of Egyptian theology, of Egyptian worldview. God is striking at the heart of that which Pharaoh holds most dearly to him, his own sovereignty and his own control. Remember he said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Oh, and the Lord is showing him with fear and terror and destruction and death. The Lord is showing him time after time. Something similar but different happens with God's children. God disciples his children. God disciplines his children. He, he dis- disciples and disciplines us so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. So we might turn and think God's thoughts after him. That our minds might be transformed and not conformed to this world. He reveals to us, does he not, through his instruction, his warning to us, areas of our thinking, areas of our conduct, our speech, our actions, which he reveals to us are out of accord with his revealed will. And he chastens, ultimately, if we won't turn, he chastens those whom he loves. And he, in his chastening, will strike at the heart of that which we hold dearest. He will remove our idols. And it's painful. And it's hard. He will eventually tear them from us or tear us from them. And yet in Pharaoh, not a child of God, we see this continuing hardness of heart. Yes, a cycle of warnings, but a hardness of heart. If you want to understand that more, read this passage again. Read Luke chapter 16, verse 31, which makes it clear that no miracle, not even somebody rising from the dead, would change the heart of people, actually. 
The heart of man we read in scripture in this cycle of hardening we see here, it's desperately wicked, deceitful above all else. Even when Pharaoh is confronted by the most powerful of evidences, plague after plague after plague after plague, he will not change his mind. What, dear friends, will it take to convince the darkened mind? No amount of evidence will do it. Nothing but the supernatural and sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. But we see something interesting about the hardening of Pharaoh here. We see that he is involved in it and God is involved in it. Chapter 8, verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. But we also see it's a personal act of God that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 9, verse 12, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Pharaoh is acting according to his darkened, unbelieving nature and hardens his own heart. But sovereignly over that, chapter 9, verse 12, is the Lord at work also hardening his heart. How can this work together? One writer says this, This hardening of God is a judicial action against one who has ignored repeated warnings, who has refused to acknowledge the significance of the signs displayed before him and even gone back on his word. The man who has repeatedly persisted in his stubbornness is now deprived of the ability to do anything else. If I ever had the foresight to write something like that, I might actually change one word. He's not now deprived from the ability to do anything else because he never had the ability to do it in the first place. But most certainly in God's judicial hardening, Pharaoh is deprived of the opportunity to do anything else. God has given him up to the hardness of his heart. Why? It's a judicial action. The court of God has found Pharaoh wanting and guilty, and God has condemned him over to be of hard heart and unrepentant. A word of application to us as the children of God. A believer, we can be thankful to God. A true believer can never be in this position of Pharaoh, being given over to a hard heart. But we have to say even believers can act like this from time to time in their lives. A believer can never be a slave to sin like Pharaoh because we're not slaves to sin. The believer always has the opportunity and the ability to refuse sin. But scripture has a category of believer who has fallen back who has backslidden into repeated sin, perhaps unrepentant sin, and hardened sin. And to look at them, we might not even think they're a believer or a child of God, because for a time they're given over to that sin, even as a child of God. It's called backsliding, where the conscience is hardened for a time, we're deaf to the warnings of friends, We're deaf to the warnings of the word. We're deaf to the warnings of chastening providence. 
And there's good news and there's bad news in this situation. The bad news, friends, is that God will chasten his children if we fall into that category. And it's bad news because that's mightily painful. Mightily painful. Terribly hard. And great personal loss can be involved in the chastening hand of God. The bad news is God will chasten his children. The good news is this. God will chasten his children. God will chasten his children. The Lord chastens them whom he loves, says the Proverbs. God loves his children too much to allow them to continue on that road of hardening and rebellion. And if he needs to, dear friend, he will use chastening in your life to turn you around. And it'll be painful and hard. And it might involve loss in your life. But afterward it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. An old pastor friend of mine, some of you will know his name, George Scipione, who's with the Lord now, used to say to me, Matt, it's easier to learn by the word than through chastening. Learn by the instruction of the word of God, dear Christian, not because God's had to break your neck with chastening. Oh, it's so much easier, so much easier to, to receive the word of God with faith. Friend, if you're going down a path now in a relationship or a course of action or a friendship or any such thing hidden normally from the sight of men, what you're doing is not hidden from the sight of God Almighty. He sees and he knows. He sees and he knows. Repent. Because you've heard this warning, not because the Lord will chasten you, but he chastens us because he loves us and he will not let us go. Oh, love that will not let me go. Hear the word, not the hardships of providence. Because God sends his messengers to you. You're hearing one now. Children, when your parents instruct you in the ways of righteousness, that's God's servant and messenger to you. Young people, when your friends speak to you about your behavior or conduct, that is God's messenger, God's servant to you. When the word is brought into your life, God has used someone. And here he used Moses. Briefly, our final consideration, God's use of his servant Moses. Remember Moses, poor, lowly, humble, searching for words, Moses. Think of him now, standing in the court of Pharaoh, the greatest king on the face of the earth. And Moses went down to Egypt with the words, I will make you like God unto him. God raised up his servant Moses. He goes before Pharaoh and he calls him to repentance. He demands on behalf of the Lord, let my people go. Imagine this today. It'd be like one of us 
being called by God to go and stand before Vladimir Putin or the president of China and demand repentance on their part. Staggering to think of it, isn't it? That God would use this man, Moses. <coughs> Moses, remember, is a prophet, a priest, and a king. In name and in office, though not appointed in a sense outwardly by those things to those things. But even though a prophet, priest, and king of God has gone to Pharaoh, Pharaoh has not profited from the ministry of Moses. There was only one prophet, priest, and king in one person other than the person Moses. It was our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider, friends, Pharaoh did not profit from the prophet, priest, and king Moses. His heart remained hardened. He died in sin. Doesn't this make in our lives, dear friends, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great prophet, the great priest, the great king, does it not make his ministry in your life all the more wonderful and precious to think that his ministry in your life and the ministry of the Holy Spirit has softened your heart and has led you to the throne of grace, has delivered you from slavery to sin in Egypt all the more. As we see an example here of one who hardened his heart and had his heart hardened, is it not a wonder to us that the Lord has not done the same for us? But he's done the opposite. He's led us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's softened our hearts. But friends, it's all the more remarkable when we realize we're no better than Pharaoh on our own. I hope you can see that, friend. That in and of yourself, we are no better than Pharaoh. No more deserving than him. Surely you must know that. There's nothing inherently different from us to Pharaoh. And surely we would not have responded to God in faith had he not worked faith in us. And born us again to a new and living hope. It's not your own merits. It's not your own understanding. Uh, Christianity is not simply understanding a series of propositions. It's emptying yourself of yourself. And laying hold of the Savior who is everything. And that by faith. Not by any other way. Christ ministering in us now who has ministered in us in the past christ as the great prophet priest and king who then sent the eternal spirit of truth the holy spirit to minister in your lives is this not a remarkable thing christ ministering even now as prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, he's ministering by his word being spoken to you now. That the eyes of your heart have been enlightened and you've been granted knowledge, saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is ministering now as our great high priest sitting at the right hand of God the Father, having offered himself up as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, and he's now sat at the right hand of the Father making continual intercession for you, dear Christian, presently serving as your great high priest. 
and Christ as king. What Moses could not do with Pharaoh, Christ has done with you. Christ has subdued you to himself. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And you say, I know who the Lord is. And I want to obey him. And I will. Christ the great king, ruling, reigning, casting down our enemies, though for a time it looks like he's not doing that. But he will. Think on this, friends. Plague number one. The God who turned water to blood for Pharaoh has turned water to wine for his children. The God who brought plagues and sickness on the Egyptians is the God in Jesus Christ who took all our sicknesses and our diseases. The God who plagued the land of Egypt is the God who's going to make the new land, the new heavens and the new earth where saints will immortally reign. The God who plagued the bread bowls of Egypt is the God who has given us the bread of life. Ah, what a God we have. What a blessed saviour we have. Friends, do we not see even in the moment of judgment... The judgment of the rebellious, the beauty of the Savior shining forth, the kindness and goodness of our God, a God who has drawn us to himself, who has healed us, who has supplied all our needs, who has redeemed us from the pit, a God who has revealed himself to you savingly, and he's revealed himself to you that he is the Lord in the midst of all the earth. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We bless and magnify your name. For we know, Lord God, there is not one God, not one, who can do for us and in us what you have done for us. And so we exalt you, Lord God, that you are the God who has freely pardoned our trespasses, who has covered our sins, that you have not imputed our sins to us, and you have cleansed our consciences from defiled works. Lord, we plead with you this night. Write all these words on our heart with a pen of diamond, that your grace and mercy shall never be erased from our minds, our hearts, and our lives. Be pleased, Father in heaven, to work in us and give us joy in the Holy Ghost this night. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.